welcome to the Local Myth Storian podcast with me, Eli Lewis Lysit. This time we're looking at a curious tale from the Borderland region between the Staffordshire Moorlands, East Cheshire and Peak District Derbyshire. It's located around the village of Flash. And throughout this region, local folklore is peppered with dark stories about cannibalism and murder. But could there be more to the historical rumours than just fear-mongering and folk warnings of the wild? Could those tales actually have some basis in reality? Well, let's find out. Cannibalism, as utterly grim as the idea is to most of us, well, I hope it is, contains an irony. Because, in truth, throughout history, it's that need for self-preservation that means it's precisely the act that most sane, rational humans have had to contemplate when situations in their life got really, really dire. No doubt you'll have read of such stories. The Arctic expedition whose crew descended into madness. The survivors of a plane crash high in the Alps lost amongst the snow. The practicalities of surviving the siege of Leningrad during the Second World War. Sombre stuff. And perhaps most of us, when we think about cannibalism, are far more likely to think about Sweeney Todd, the evil Victorian barber, butchering his customers and serving them as pies to unwitting patrons. But what happens when stories like Sweeney Todd are not curated for pure entertainment? What happens when they are believed to be real and rooted right here in rural England? This is an inquiry into one such tale. And a story that will, as the most intriguing of folklore always does, leads us to an origin that would be impossible to predict. The tale itself straddles the boundary between rural horror story and grimesque fairy tale, much in the manner that it does to the geography of the Three Shires border region. It's the tale of a local family who will befriend weary travellers, giving them a rest for the night before stealing their belongings smelting down their gold into coins before dispatching them and disposing of the remains by roasting up the most tasty parts for supper. And as we'll see, this popular trope in the local area is in fact more of a distillation, a snapshot to be easily recalled, and one that is actually found transposed to various spots throughout the local area. It's a tale that has created several misunderstandings in its wake, which is a testament to the power and depth of its roots. Primarily focused on the borderland village of Flash, It's held together with an idea that the Flash Inn, the local pub there, was once owned to a gang of counterfeit coiners, who would stamp coins from the gold and silver taken from the travellers that were murdered. The terms Flash Money and being flashy are both said to have been created by that history. Should the law catch up with the coiners, they would rush out to Three Shires Head, where the bridge over the River Dame meant that they could hop between the counties of Cheshire, Derbyshire and Staffordshire and avoid any county-tied justice systems in the process. That's always felt a little bit fanciful to me, but the history of the area may serve to bring these strands together into something resembling reality. So with this in mind, let's take a look at the tale itself. Known as Castor's Bridge, which is a reference to the tale's central location, found near the hamlet of Gradbitch, a story is set amongst a central rugged and wild weave of countryside that wouldn't be out of place in a Bronte novel. First produced back in print in 1860, in a collection called The Legends of the Moorlands and Forest in North Staffordshire. The tale is a far more substantial piece of folklore than any of the subsequent retellings would lead us to believe. It's the story of a travelling merchant returning to an area he knew well as a boy, who is returning now replete with the riches that he once left in search of. 
It's a wonderful piece of historical poetry, told in the rhythm of many popular pieces of the time with a metre that perhaps quite intentionally feels like a ballad. I'll repeat it here in its full form, as I feel that to chop it and abridge it, just for convenience, would really lessen our chance for understanding the root of the tale. Castor's Bridge From this low mossy seat can I yet see, as in days of yore an ancient tree, of beech and sycamore on either side, yon sparkling streamlet with its silvery tide. Stretched over it, its arc of dark grey stone, and battlemented sides by moss overgrown. Old Castor's Bridge has yet a voice to tell, the bygone legends of this lonely dell. And there the black brook, rolling underneath, flows with impetuous torrent from yon heath, which clothes the jutting sides of that ravine, where the tall pine trees rear their heads between. In yonder copse a hostel once had stood, near to the fence of briars and underwood, and neath those rising hillocks on the green the old foundations are yet plainly seen. Strange things have long been talked about and told by patriarchs of the country grey and old, who in their youth had heard their sires relate darings of deeds of robbers and their fate, and the old forest road then wound along through shading trees which echoed to the song of birds and wild notes mingling low came murmuring from the old Dane's perpetual flow. Though quite secluded and for miles remote from human dwellings once the devious root of that broad road sounded to the tread of beast of burden through the country led. And cattle drivers from the cultured frith beyond those purple hills with jocund myth chatted and laughed along the heathery way, or sung with well-tuned voice some quaint old roundelay. But that was the past, and then there came a time when these deep wilds no longer heard the chime of merry human voices and the rude but social sounds that broke the solitude. Traffic had ceased, the cause long since unknown, and this wide track by grass soon overgrown was only pressed by the lonely traveller's tread as through these arching cliffs he onward sped. Haste, weary pilgrim, to that distant plain, where the bright sky and daylight shines again. And from these dark recesses, make all speed to reach your heights which to the country lead. Nor look around for shelter here, nor rest, nor in that gloomy hostel be a guest. Amongst the soil, where once had stood the door, portions may yet be found of mountain ore. And it said a furnace came, to that lonely dwelling long of doubtful fame, mysterious whispers through the country spread, and when by pleasure or for profit led, through that well forest with staves in hands, the peasantry essayed to go in bands, and then they often heard it rumoured here, that men had journeyed that way before. But as they singly and alone had been, no trace of them had been found or seen. Over the dreary roaches some had crossed, and it was feared inevitably lost. Tedious the way along that forest then, and near its entrance in a stony glen, now called the paddock by the beaten road, a good old farmer and his wife abode. Passing this place, a peddler took his way, and though invited much, he wanted to stay. By all the horrors which could tither tend, he was resolved to reach his journey's end. So giving many thanks, he took his pack and placed it sturdy upon his back, leaving the grim old roaches to the right, lit by the evening sun, grotesque and bright, 
He hastened to ascend the neighbouring hill, and stood on that broad heath all bare and still. Casting a glance keen and salacious over the country he had thought to see no more. For he had left it in his youth, and been the sport of fortune, and through many a scene of danger had vicissitude passed, thus to those strange old haunts to come at last. In all his wanderings he had never met, with a light like this so glorious and yet so wild in its magnificence the sun, with lingering rapture cast a lustrion. The gorgeous landscape and the peddler's soul upwards in humble adoration stole. But he must forward press, or else the night would surely overtake him, and the light would soon be dim, and the moon cold and pale, having risen in his steps to reach the vale. There he emerged at length, and soon espied a lonely cottage by the riverside. And by the door he saw a mastiff stand, to note when travellers were near at hand. Then forth came a man with grisly beard, and close behind a woman stood and peered. With furtive looks, and then they both begin to soothe the dog and ask the stranger in. Familiar all the rest, but of this place, he could not in his mind recall a trace, but he was weary, and the day had come, from now and far as he drew nearer home. The thought arose that he would turn and rest, and for the night repose and start refreshed. While thus he ponders on his listing ear, there broke the sound of children's voices near. So on the instant, without more ado, to the wide open door he slowly drew, Eased of his burden and then without restraint, he stretched his limbs and feeling tired and faint, called loudly for his supper and a bed, and then he heard the slow and distant tread of many feet, so going to the door, he thought they must be busy melting ore, from the great light and the heat, their only trade, of which they said a living could be made. The latch he had already in his hand, but a strange thought that moment made him stand and listen, and a voice distinctly said, Mother, when will that queer old man be dead? I'm sure the oven will soon be very hot, though chained with trembling horror to the spot, the wary peddler's footsteps lingered not, but without thought on the river went, and through that power for brief space were lent, by providence for climbing up the side, from where the stonework rose above the tide, he reached the top and grasped a narrow ridge within the arching roof of Castor's Bridge. Ere it was done, and came upon his track, right to the water's edge, a murderous pack, of women, men and dogs, who all surveilled their horrid purpose as he lay concealed. Some up, others down, they scoured the stream, with torches in their hands, nor did they dream of his escape, or that their destined prey would ever see the light of the opening day. With what tenacity his fingers clung, as on his ear their dreadful voices rung, and thus the night and greater part was passed, and every breath the paddler deemed his last. At length deciding that the place was cleared, then over the bridge and down the river steered, and then he freely breathed and stove to think, so gliding down he crept along the brink, and struck into a thicket from the dam, which in his boyhood he remembered well. Slowly beneath the briars which grew among the tangled brushwood he moved along, with hands and feet all torn beyond that height of which the moon poured forth a silvery light. There he was safe and stood upon his feet, and there his heart with wild motions beat, and from its spent-up terror eased by sighs. He raised with speechless gratitude his eyes, and poured his soul in thankfulness and praise to that great power through whose such dreadful ways had safely brought him, and now strangely cast, his footsteps near his dear old home at last. 
That word was like a magnet to his soul, which turned as true as needle to the pole, and while he knew that his eyes had been dim, that devious road would still be plain to him. But they were bright and piercing, and on high, the moon careered in beauty silently, and many a turning did his footsteps take through lowland dingle and upland brake. Ere on the slope he got, and then he rushed, the tide of old remembrances which gushed, as from a wellspring that had long been dry, till, at its need, some hidden streams supply. In sorrow and in sad abasement now, he called to mind he had made a vow, never to come again until he had earned some lordly independence, and he had spurned his mother's dear caresses and her tears, and laughed in thoughtless mockery at her fears. The homestead seemed as firm as when of old, he left it, and the gable, strange and bold, still looking grotesque, but at an angle there, he saw the ancient pollard grey and bare. Nature appeared externally the same, and then hope with the tender memories came, and whispered to his heart so long estranged, that perhaps within all might be unchanged. Now from the narrow window lights were gleaming, and the sound of merriment and joy came teeming and sitting figures full of life and glee were keeping up some old festivity. He turned as in a dream, when by the hand they led him forth to join that charmed band. Enough for them, a night-worn stranger, he partook in their mirth and hospitality. Then did the past before his vision roll, as he beheld the strange old wassail bowl. And looking in the corner, there he saw an aged dame, whose word appeared the law. Straight he began, with earnest eyes to trace the features of his memory on her face, and kneeling at her feet in sorrow wild, implored his mother to behold her child. The voice of nature called once more to life, a hope deferred, but the forgotten strife, betwixt grief and joy seemed a while too great, like ground on which the spring shower falls too late. His father and his brother were gone, and there he waited, sat all still and long. But sightless though she was, upon her ear fell the familiar tones to memory dear, and it was strange to see her fingers now part the balanced locks from his furrowed brow, and then a throb of pleasure at her heart make the reliving tears unbidden start. Yet bright days were in store, for he had wealth, and better far than riches, he had health. And that gay youthful band around him strove to shed an atmosphere of peace and love whilst in his godly life they might all see the sacred uses of adversity. Now to the nearest town, without delay, the honest peddler went on his way. Of all that had happened in that dread resort of desperados that their promises aid by the authorities was quickly made. And down those rugged steps and through the vale came proud plumes waving in the autumn gale, and their high sun gleamed on their glittering spears as over the grey old bridge that bright red band appears. The soldiers came, and from the infested place, they dragged the wretched inmates with no space to hide or fly. Far from the walls around, they fiercely raised the building to the ground. And then no doubt remained as to their crimes, which they in full confessed, and of the times, when weary travellers, albeit brave and bold, had lost their lives a sacrifice to gold. So they had murdered them and quenched their life of light and hope and in their wretched strife for filthy lucre, which now, though slow, had wrought their own irrevocable woe. For the law's atonement must be made and the most wretched lives the forfeit paid. Then, it is said, came a fearful flood which unindated the whole neighbourhood. And rising high to where those ruins lay, it washed them in its fury all the way. 
Ages have gone since then, and gently now glides on that river in its peaceful flow. It sounds a mournful requiem to the past, sighing and moaning in the forest blast. Then off, like sweet music, soft and clear, soothes with bewitching tones the listening ear, and to the unquiet soul and troubled breast, breathes from yon far-off land of peace and rest. The contributor of the tale in 1860 was given as a Miss Dakin, and as noted in a Country Life article of the time, as being from a family of silk manufacturers at Grabbatch Mill, where they've been in situ since 1780. This can give us some idea of the timeline of the tale's origins, as can references within the poem pertaining to contemporary local events. The peddler is familiar with the local area and appears to be passing through on a journey back to his mother and his childhood home, when the beauty of the surrounding landscape distracts him to such a point that with night falling he needs to rest until the morning. Being invited in by the family at an isolated cottage, there's a sense that the peddler is already under the impression that the family is in the business of smelting down metal, something that connects directly with the old legends of Flash, and to which we can only assume the peddler did not apply any notion of legality. Alarmed by the words of the child in the night, he endeavours to make his escape, dashing out into the country dark, before finding sanctuary beneath the cover of Castor's Bridge, itself a site of archaeological note locally, and known as an old smelting site. As the family from the cottage search for him, the waters beneath the bridge mask the peddler's scent from their dogs, and our as-yet-straightforward tale of adventure takes a sudden turn for the strange. What follows is akin to a dream sequence with the peddler stumbling through time to find his childhood home, which appears to be full of Christmas festivity. He's invited in and enjoys the hospitality, before suddenly, as the scene fades and changes, he finds both his brother and father vanished, and he's alone in the house, but for his aged mother. As quickly as the dream sequence begins, it ends, and the peddler is off to a nearby town, which must be either Leek, Macclesfield or Buxton, to notify authorities of his plight, who then send out torchlit bands to the cottage to tear the property down and apprehend the murderous family. Of all the observations available in the tale, one of important note is that the trackway on which the murderous family would spy their prey had apparently once been far busier. And if we had to place the tale in the timeline of the local history, which we must if we've got any hope of discerning its provenance, this could be vital. It may be indicative of a substantial change in the local economy, which may prove to be a gem of a clue as we pursue the true meaning of this strange and wonderful tale after more than 160 years of rumour and speculation. The countryside around Quarford was once alive with the trackways of Jagger pack horses transporting goods between the villages and towns of the wider area. However, come the latter half of the 18th century, local life was changing. The first mills of the Industrial Revolution were transforming the economic outlook of towns throughout the wider area, and those living in the satellite villages and rural communities around them were finding their world increasingly to be in a state of flux. There was now a viable alternative to the roles and professions that had been mainstays throughout the hills and moors for hundreds of years. Naturally, as people's habits changed, so did their routes of travel. A new route to Buxton had been set out in the 1760s, and in both 1771 and 73, brand new turnpike roads had been laid throughout the area. In essence, this meant that it had taken less than 10 years to completely change the transport infrastructure of the local countryside. Add to this that we know the village of Flash had its own 
Association for the Prosecution of Felons by 1811, were presented with a window of 40 years between 1770, when the transport links changed, and 1810, when the activities of local felons would not have required the work of local vigilante bands to taper them. It's a time frame that leads us directly towards the last days of the most notorious local criminal organisation of the period, the Meg Lane Farm Gang. You may have noticed a rather inconvenient omission from the tale regarding our fundamental quarry, the issue of the cannibals. When the peddler overhears the child asking if he will soon be dead as the oven is warming, the sole cause of suspicion for the cannibal legend. It would perhaps be far more likely this was a reference to the smelting of his gold rather than the cooking of his body, but we shouldn't dismiss the idea too hastily. A work of archaeological review from 1865, the tale of Castus Bridge is referenced in some detail, as is a clue to the issue of the origins of the cannibal legend. It reads like this. In a pleasant little book published a few years ago, there is a legend told of this bridge, that a man pursued from a hostelry near by his murderous host took refuge under it. That hostelry stood in the garden attached to the white cottage nearby. Many are the dismal stories related to the country people respecting it, and of white and ghastly ghosts walking headless from the brook to the garden. And after them, of course, come explanations that many a traveller had been murdered there in bygone days and cast into the river. Some say these crimes were committed for the sake of gold, and that sums of money are from time to time exhumed about the premises. The latter report is partly true, for money certainly has been found, but none of greater value than a shilling. The old people of the neighbourhood also have stories of men being killed, and the rest is too horrible to write. I only mention the fact because omitting it, I should omit one of the most popular fireside tales of the Moorlands. Some man might perhaps have fallen into the furnace when smelting was carried on there, and so have given an ample and perfectly sufficient foundation for all the dismal stories which have been told about the ancient furies of the spot, the cannibals of Castor's Bridge. Not only is this entry further evidence of just how well established the legend was in the local area, but it also gives us cause to shore up the possibility that the mention in the original tale of the oven getting hot was indeed a reference to the family being of a cannibalistic bent. Clearly, it was a core part of the story locked into the lore of the area by the 1860s. In addressing the area of Castor's Bridge, reference is made to the meaning of the name Castor being an alternative to smelter or welder. The note continues... To those who are disposed to think that some members of the Megalane gang once worked here, the following note upon that gang, taken from that fair little story of the forest, Spellbound, may be amusing. Megalane Farm in Sutton, a few miles from Castor's Bridge, was once the rendezvous of a notorious local gang of coiners, who for a long time carried out their nefarious trades with impunity. Members of the gang were dispersed in different parts of the neighbourhood and in situations that enabled them to know all the movements of the constables. Fearful robberies were committed and money coined in abundance at Meg Lane Farm from the spoils of their nocturnal depredations. Yet for a long time, all the attempts of the just were completely baffled until at length some clue was obtained through a servant girl who had lived with one of the men at the toll bar. The gang was broken up and some of them executed at Chester, the farmhouse passed into other hands and has since undergone great alterations, but in clearing out a well in the yard, various implements were found, amongst others a perfect coining engine, working by a powerful screw for punching out the coins and for striking the impression on them. 
This engine is now in the possession of Mr. Smith of Langley near Macclesfield. The pleasant little book referred to in relation to the tale was first published in 1859 by Nayland son of Leek and is attributed to a moorlander who has had good opportunities of hearing all the forest legends and her work contains a very interesting matter for which every tourist should read while he rests among the rocks she speaks of. Not only does this give us a clear correlation between the events that are described in the legend and the activities of that notorious local gang, but also an indication that the 1859 notes identifying their source as a woman is likely to be the same Miss Dakin that penned the original tale. Of particular importance too is the mention of the coining engine. According to witnesses in the local press who had viewed the machine during the early 20th century, the press contained upon it the initials IH, which is believed to have been a reference to a local blacksmith by the name of Isaac Heath, who operated from the present-day site of the Riles Arms at the turn of the 1800s, only a stone's throw away from Meg Lane Farm. Led by a local figure known as Hugh Raven, taken to be a highwayman of sorts, the Meglane's gang connection to smelting is directly referenced again in another local poem of the 1850s. A furnace in the gloom was reared through with its flashes wildly glared. Near it were placed huge iron dies, by massive screws they fall and rise. His swarthy ruffians, half undressed, bare sinewy arms and bony chest. Plied without fear their secret trade, and coin of gold and silver made. That particular poem is known as Spellbound, or rather Spellbound, a tale in verse by Redgirdle, the Forest Fay, to give it its full title. It's a remarkable extensive piece of work that casts light across Hugh Raven and all manner of curious local characters and events, but it's its reference to the coiners to which we can attach significance here. There is clearly a local tradition, a strong tradition of smelting across the countryside that sat between the village of Flash in Staffordshire, the neighbouring Cheshire settlements of Sutton and Langley, and the surrounding peat border communities of Derbyshire. In a landscape divided by changes to transport and local economy in the late 18th century, it would appear that an existing criminal enterprise found itself enabled further by the isolated and vulnerable nature of the traveller that now passed beneath its watch. That there were two separate organisations in the business of murdering those travellers and smelting down their stolen riches feels far less likely than the arrival of a situation whereby certain felonously minded families from across the wider region had found themselves connected to and supported by a centralised local enterprise founded in the activities of the Meglane Farm Gang. We've learned how members of the gang were dispersed in different parts of the neighbourhood. And together with a reference to a toll house, this dovetails neatly into our earlier proposed time frame. It would appear that during the late 1700s, the trackways of the Borderlands were an extremely dangerous place to be for the lone traveller. The memory of which has haunted long in uber-local tales across the hamlets and villages of the area. As the incumbent lay of industry changed around them, the smelting skills inherent amongst those practising long-standing local trades found a profitable second life in the process of coining. And perhaps in some form, it had always been that way. But if the notion of murder and robbery is accepted without too much contention within the framework laid out here, it's perhaps a question for each of us to answer privately as to how much of a stretch it is to give credence to the idea that the bodies of the dispossessed may have been disposed of in the furnaces. It's a question that perhaps ponders an answer born of practicality as much as anything else. If this really was a long and murderous tradition in the local area, as the law suggests, 
That's a whole lot of bodies to hide away without getting caught. Custer's Bridge, Spellbound, and the apparent depth of local legend around the tale ultimately points towards a rather grim reality that, at least in part, may have been just as disturbing as the tales would seem to imply. So the message from the literature is clear. Be careful in the hills. Be careful on the moors. You never know who's watching you, nor how hungry they might be. You can read more about the um, smelters and the coiners of Caster's Bridge in my book, Mythstoric Origins, which is available via my website, thelocalmythstorian.com, and on Amazon. If you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe and sign up for the newsletter on the website, where you'll get access to lots and lots of things to do with the local history of folklore of Cheshire, Derbyshire, and Staffordshire. You can find me on Twitter too, at TLMythstorian. It's been an absolute pleasure. Until next time.